warm welcome to all of you. Uh, can I add that um, my welcome to that of Tim and Patrick? Uh, my name is Brian, for those of you who don't know me, and I lead the Smack 2 service. Uh, before we continue, uh, I've got an announcement to make. If your car number is MX4231, MX4231, um, I'm afraid you're blocking another car. So if that's you, uh, could you just uh, yeah, seek to remove it? So MX4231. Well, if that's not you, then can I encourage you to stay in your seats, open your Bible as well to Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 13 to 10, verse 20. That's the passage we're going to look at today. Also, in your Bibles, you should have gotten uh, a couple of sheets of paper. On one of them, you'll find an outline for today's sermon. Uh, you'll find an outline especially helpful today. Uh, as you probably noticed, the nature of the passage today is that it's all a bit jumbled up. So having an outline in front of you would help you to follow along. Of course, no outline is going to help you if we don't have God with us to help us. So let's pray and ask God for his help first of all. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you know that our minds are foolish and darkened without you. We thank you so much that you've given us Jesus and you've given us the Holy Spirit. That we might trust in you, that we might relate to you, that we might be able to hear you. So will you give us eyes to see today and ears to hear? Will you help our hearts to understand and to worship you? as we receive your bread of life today. We pray all this in Jesus' most precious name. Amen. Now, if you could just bear with me for a moment while I get you to do an English spelling exercise. Uh, I do have an English degree after all. So first of all, I want you to remember this common English spelling rule. I before E except after C. Got that? I before E except after C. And now, if you've got a pencil with you, or if you don't just do it in your head, right, try to spell out these words. Believe. Achieve. Feel, as in football feels. Receive. Feeling. Now think about those words. Yeah, that feeling, that's right, George. So you think about those words. Do they fit the rule? Yes, congratulations. So now you can display your spelling genius to all your friends. Seems like quite a useful rule at first sight, doesn't it? But now what about these words? Weird. You probably think what we're doing now is weird. Science. Neighbor. Caffeine. Either. Whoops, that rule doesn't seem quite so useful now, does it? See, those are exceptions. And I've only just given you a sample. Now, people have tried to modify the rule. You know, they say things like, oh, I before E except after C applies only when the letter E is pronounced in a certain way. But before long, people found exceptions to that as well. There are just too many exceptions. And rules of life can be like that too, can't they? Yeah, just think of some common sayings. Here's one. Many hands make light work. I'm sure all of you know that. And we know that's true in many cases. 
you know, setting up and clearing our Smack library takes twice as fast when it's not just fast shit doing all the work. So it's a good rule of thumb, a good amount of the time. But we can think of just as many exceptions to that rule. You know, just think of that person who's working on your project at the moment, who ends up slowing everything down because he's so lazy and inefficient, or, or because she loves to quarrel about everything. So much so that we've got a saying that recognizes these exceptions. Many cooks spoil the broth. Too many cooks spoil the broth. And such proverbial sayings are useful at first sight, but it's not long before you find exceptions. Or what about personal mottos in life? You know, one of my former teachers posted this on her Facebook wall recently. Uh, she wrote this, I strongly believe in karma. You should too. Reflect, cause and effect. What has happened in your life and to you usually has something to do with what you did. And if you think you didn't do anything to cause that, think again. Be at your best. Try your best. That's her motto. Cause and effect. Try your best. Well, you can see her basic point. You can even see some truth in her words. But I'm sure you can think of just as many exceptions as well. In fact, the preacher gave us some good examples last week, didn't he? In Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 11. Have a look back, just a few verses back. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, no bread to the wise, no riches to the intelligent, no favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. The smartest and hardest workers don't always get straight A's or get promoted. Life isn't so straightforward. And that does raise a question, doesn't it? If reality isn't so straightforward, if the rules of life seem to have so many exceptions, well, how, how am I to navigate my way through life? And in today's passage, the preacher is going to think deeply about this question. He's going to evaluate in particular the nature of wisdom for navigating life's pathway. And now this is a man who knows his wisdom sayings well, and as we've seen all throughout Ecclesiastes, he's a keen observer of the world. He knows better than most of us that life is not straightforward. And so he's going to see how wisdom fares when life facing life under the sun. So let's go with him. And his first conclusion is this. Wisdom is better. Wisdom is better. Look at 9 verse 13 to 15. I've also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Now here is a true David and Goliath situation. Now, there's a little town in Sarawak, which is where I'm from, called Lubok Antu. According to the last census back in 2010, there were exactly 555 people living in it. 
The town has some old, old wooden shop houses. It's got a market, a food court, some religious facilities, some community facilities. And around it, there are paddy fields, rubber plantations. And that's it, really. Now, imagine someone coming with vast resources. He comes along, he sees this little town, and he thinks, for some reason or other, oh, I actually want Lubo Antu for myself. So he's got a private army, at least five times bigger than the entire population of the little town. He's got superior firepower. You know, he's got tanks. The people in the town just have knives. He's got the town surrounded, cutting off any aid from outside. And that's the kind of scenario being described in these verses. Humanly speaking, it's a hopeless situation. But in this little city, there's a wise man. And notice that his lack of resources is emphasized twice in verse 15. We are reminded that he is poor. But he does have one thing. Wisdom. And somehow, we're not told how, he delivers the city by his wisdom. See, this is the stuff of Hollywood movies. This is what left a great impression on the preacher. Uh, this is why he said earlier in 7 verse 19, Wisdom gives strength to the wise men, more than ten rulers who are in the city. Wisdom, clearly, is good. And yet... And yet, the end of verse 15 takes a surprising turn. Look at the second half of verse 15. Yet no one remembered that poor man. The preacher has to qualify his conclusion. Wisdom is good, and yet no one remembers the poor man. You think that someone who did such a great thing would not only be remembered, but celebrated. And yet it's not long before the people are busy discussing the love life of their favorite pop star or struggling to remember this poor wise man's name. Uh, perhaps the preacher himself has forgotten too. We forget the good guys. That's what we're like. Now, my guess is that no one here knows who Thomas Clarkson is. Well done if you do. Uh, Clarkson, together with William Wilberforce, played a big part in the anti-slavery movement of the 19th century. Uh, he was a guy traveling around England to promote the cause while Wilberforce was doing the same in Parliament. But few people remember him. And if we are honest, we know that there are plenty of other forgotten people like him too. No one remembers that poor, wise man. Even worse, his wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. That's verse 16. The man is no longer seen as wise. He's simply referred to as that poor man. That's it. And whenever he opens his mouth, the older folk sigh and say, oh, there he goes again, rambling as usual. Their children say, oh, how stupid, who cares? And then they go back to playing on their phones and tablets. But the preacher sticks to his guns in verse 16. For he says there that the words of the wise, sorry, uh, he says there that wisdom is better than might. Verse 16. After all, the city has been delivered. 
people have been rescued. The wise man has beaten the king. Sure, people devalue and reject wisdom as soon as the danger is past. But the preacher insists in verse 17, the words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Choose wisdom over might. But at the same time, the preacher is too much of a realist not to recognize the fragility of wisdom. Verse 18, wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. It doesn't take much to wipe out all of wisdom's benefits. And as an example, the preacher quotes a proverb in 10 verse 1. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. You know, just a few small dead flies mixed into the ingredients of your Chanel number no. 5, and it will stink no matter what. It doesn't matter how many times Brad Pitt endorses it. There's a Cantonese saying that makes the exact same point. Uh, one mouse dropping ruins a whole pot of rice porridge. A football team can play well for 89 minutes, but all it takes is for one moment of foolishness from the goalkeeper, and all their hard work is undone. A Christian organization could be doing very good work amongst the poor, but all it takes is for one person to cheat just once, and all their good work is undone. Yes, wisdom is better, the preacher affirms, and yet it is amazingly fragile. Is wisdom really better? And so the preacher continues to meditate. And his second conclusion is this. Folly is worse. Folly is worse. That's the other side of the coin. Now throughout the passage, the preacher has been contrasting wisdom and folly. But he doesn't pay equal attention to both. He actually spends more time looking at folly than at wisdom. And he concludes, folly is worse. Now, why does he say this? He's got a few reasons. And here's the first reason. It leads you the wrong way. Verse 2. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Now, in Hebrew thought, the right side was a place of honor, of protection. And so, by implication, the left side was a place of dishonor and of disaster. So, for example, in Psalm 17, verse 7, we read, it should be on the screen, Wonderfully show your, great, uh, your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries, at your right hand. Or Jesus himself draws a sharp contrast between the right and the left when he says in Matthew 25, verse 33, And the Son of Man will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. A wise man is inclined to walk God's way to the right, whereas a fool is inclined simply to walk away to the left. And he's headed for disaster. He cannot hide who he is. Verse 3. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. You know, whenever he's in a public place, whether by his behavior or by his speech, he gives away the fact that he is a fool. Folly is worse. 
here's a second reason. It doesn't prepare you well. Now, the preacher shows us the consequences of folly in verses 8 to 10. Verse 8. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. Now, the picture here is that of a hunter preparing a trap. It could be a trap for an animal, or more darkly, it could be a trap for someone else. Now, either way, he could very well fall into it himself. Maybe his foot gets caught and he slips. Maybe his trap is disguised and in a moment of forgetfulness, he walks right into it. He pays the price of folly. Similarly, you could pay the price of folly while breaking through a wall. You see, small poisonous snakes could often be found in the cracks in between the bricks. So one wrong move, and you could die. Now, poetic justice, you might argue. After all, if you've been looking to break through wars, you probably don't have good motives. Who else breaks through wars except thieves and trespassers? You got what you deserve. It's the law of karma. But we know by now that the preacher is a better observer of the world than that. He knows that in real life, folly isn't simply about cause and effect. So we get verse 9. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits locks is endangered by them. Now, unlike the activities of verse 8, which could have a malicious intent to them, these are clearly more innocent. These are people getting on with their daily jobs. But whether you're extracting stones or you're splitting locks, there are always dangers. There's always an unpredictable element. A stone might fall the wrong way. Splinters might get into your fingers or worse, into your eyes. You could lose your grip on the axe. No evil intentions here, just a little foolishness. And serious injuries could result. So be aware, the preacher is saying. Be prepared and wise in facing the unpredictable world. Verse 10. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, but he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. Now the preacher doesn't seem to think that the possibility of accidents in verse 9 should stop you from going about your daily jobs. All he's saying, though, is be wise about it. It's wise to sharpen your iron axe head. Otherwise, you're just wasting unnecessary energy. So that would help you succeed. So don't rush. Work out what needs to be done. Otherwise, you'll find yourself wasting more time. Or worse still, you could be needlessly Posing yourself to danger. Verse 11. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. Wisdom only goes as far as its execution. Folly through under-preparation is worse. Here's a third reason. Foolish words will consume you. Verse 12. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, 
but the lips of a fool consume him. How so? Well, look back with me at verse 4, where the preacher gives an example. Verse 4. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. Now, it's unpleasant, isn't it, whenever someone in authority gets angry with you? Whether it's your parents or your boss or your teacher or some government officials, it's just hard to stay cool once they start lambasting you. And it's even worse if we think that we are right. And the huge temptation is for us to blast right back, isn't it? Oh, so you thought that was a substantial piece of work, did you? Well, let me tell you what a substantial manager you are. Oh, you thought my presentation skills were poor? Well, let me tell you something about your relational skills. Uh, at this point, you might even be fantasizing about handing in your resignation there and then. And then you're walking away in triumphant mode while you hear the orchestra suddenly welling out in the background. And then all your colleagues are lining up to give you applause. Well, the preacher says, don't be stupid. Folly is worse. You see, choosing that path will almost certainly consume you. You'll recognize that more when you're still hunting for a job six months later. Take a deep breath. Remember Proverbs 15 verse 1. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. That will win you favor, perhaps even undeserved favor, if you were wrong in the first place. Verse 4. Calmness will lay great offenses to rest. Now, Another way to translate that word calmness is the word healing. So be wise and look to heal the relationship with your words. That's why the preacher advocates restraint. For verses 13 to 14, come back there. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be. And who can tell him what will be after him? The more we speak, the more likely we are to make things worse. Now, writing to New Testament believers, James could say a similar thing. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, he says. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. A fool is one who does not recognize the potential of his tongue for evil. He talks and talks, even though he doesn't know what is to be, verse 14. He, he doesn't know the future, but makes confident predictions all the same. In fact, it reveals his ungodliness, for it shows that he does not really know God, the one who holds his future. Again, James makes a similar point. In James 4, verse 13 to 16, James says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such a such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this and that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, 
all such boasting is evil. As it is, this person is such a fool. Verse 15, that he doesn't even know the way to the city. Never mind the future. Folly is worse. Here's a fourth reason. It has bad effects on national life. Verse 16. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princess feasts in the morning. Now, I don't think this necessarily has to be taken literally. The preacher is simply saying, if your country has a king who behaves in childish and immature ways, then you're in trouble. If your king thinks that attending briefings on the state of the nation is boring, if he can't see what's wrong with overpaying for torchlights and laptops, if, if, if he and his princess are more interested in knowing whether it's dim sum or roti chanai for breakfast tomorrow morning, than whether his people have enough to eat, well, you're in trouble. And so, verse 18, through sloth the roof sinks in, and through indolence the house leaks. See, it doesn't take much to ruin something. Just don't bother with ever sweeping the floor. Ignore the leaking pipe. Never mind about the peeling paint. And before you know it, the house is ruined. All it takes is laziness and neglect. And that's all it takes not just to bring down a house, but a kingdom too. That's folly. That's why verse 17, Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility, and your princess feasts at the proper time, for strength and not for drunkenness. Folly has bad effects on national life. Folly is worse. And yet, and yet, once again the preacher finds some exceptions to his conclusion. Come back with me to verses 5 to 7. Verse 5. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen